Welcome back to the Dark and Stormy podcast. Today, we will be continuing our exploration into the members of the 27 Club, that unlucky group of creatives that met their untimely demise at the tender age of 27. If you haven't already, check out the previous episode, where we discuss the first two on our list. And now, we bring you the lives and tragic deaths of two more artistic legends in part two of this series. Johnny Hendrix was born November 27, 1942. By the time he died, 27 years and 10 months later, he was a rock god and considered the greatest guitarist that ever lived. Regardless of your level of interest in music, or where you're from, you've no doubt heard of him though most likely by the name he was given a few years after he was born, Jimmy. Jimmy's childhood was both unstable and unhappy. His father had been in the army when he was born, but after he got out, the family's troubles grew in correlation with the family's size. Jimmy was the oldest child of four, but only had a close relationship with his younger brother, Leon. This was due to the fact that As a consequence of his parents' spiral into alcoholism, the three youngest children spent virtually no time together as a family before they were adopted out or put into foster care. Jimmy and Leon spent a lot of time in foster care as well, and he later recounted that he'd suffered a lot of physical and sexual abuse while in these foster homes. Few who knew the young Jimmy would have expected him to have a future as a rock god, And if rock royalty was his ultimate plan, he certainly took a circuitous route. Jimmy never even owned a guitar until his mid-teens, but through the combination of a natural inclination towards music and a great work ethic, Jimmy quickly became very good. It's staggering when you realise he went from fumbling beginner to worshipped guitar prodigy in just 12 years. Though he had inherent talent, He wasn't the type who could simply pick up a guitar and be incredible. He worked hard. Once he acquired his first guitar, he threw himself into practice, inspired by the blues greats, Robert Johnson, Muddy Waters, Buddy Guy. He would play for hours on end and immediately gathered his friends to form bands and create music. Possibly due to his father's influence, Jimmy joined the army in his late teens and unsurprisingly, he wasn't cut out for that lifestyle. All he wanted to do was jam on his guitar. He left the army after a year and started performing backup for various artists throughout the southern United States. Music was quickly evolving, and many of the Motown acts he supported and toured with, such as the Idy Brothers and Little Richard, had a sound that was quite removed in the genre and style to that which would soon be known as distinctly Jimi Hendrix. Hendrix moved to New York City in the mid-1960s, and coincidentally, his rise to fame was linked in part to that of the Rolling Stones. While playing at a particular venue, he became friends with Linda Keith, who was dating Keith Richards at the time. They thought Hendrix had immense potential and talent, and so used their connections to help him. Through the Stones, he met a musician named Chaz Chandler. Chandler had been part of another British invasion band, The Animals, but had wanted to move behind the scenes to become a manager and producer for up-and-coming musical talents. 
Chandler liked Hendrix a lot and quickly signed him to a contract before creating a band that would be known as the Jimi Hendrix Experience. Chandler gave Jimi the unique and later iconic spelling of his name and introduced him to many up-and-coming players in the London music scene. Once the Jimi Hendrix Experience had recruited band members Noel Redding and Mitch Mitchell, they were ready to record and prepare for their first shows. It was late 1966, and within just a few months, they'd recorded the song Hey Joe, which hit the top 10 in the UK charts and continues to be indelibly linked with Hendrix right to this day. While others had covered the song before, it was Jimmy's voice and guitar skills that gave the track its certain je ne sais quoi. One of their first shows in London turned out to be a show of a lifetime, since in the audience there were John Lennon, Paul McCartney, Eric Clapton, Pete Townsend, Mick Jagger, and the previously mentioned 27 Club member Brian Jones. It was undoubtedly an intensely nerve-wracking performance for the newly formed band, but they absolutely killed it. Despite his inauspicious beginnings, Hendrix was a born performer, moving and using his body in ways that had rarely been seen in rock shows before. He danced, he strutted, he rolled on the floor and set his guitar on fire, blowing the minds of the audience with his insane guitar solos. And that flaming guitar? Hendrix did that at a show in London, and the few photos that exist of the event have become iconic, turned into posters that decorate the walls of college dorm rooms to this day. The photos were published all over the world and gave him significant exposure in the USA. It's fairly common for musicians to sound inferior when they perform live compared to their studio tracks, but Hendrix was the rare exception. He imbued his songs with so much passion and attitude, you had to see it to truly understand and experience the intensity and majesty. The band's subsequent singles also became smash hits, including the unforgettable Purple Haze and The Wind Cries Mary. Just a year after moving to London and signing to the label, Jimmy's band released their first album, Are You Experienced? It flew up the UK charts, hitting number two, second only to a Beatles album. Decades later, in 2005, the album was ranked at number 15 on the Rolling Stones list of the greatest albums of all time. Hendrix Starr had one of the fastest ascensions in music history, and it burned hot and bright, an intense and dangerous combination that could never truly last. On their first US tour, the Jimi Hendrix Experience played with well-established bands such as Big Brother and The Holding Company, which we will cover in more depth in the next chapter in this series. The Jimi Hendrix Experience were huge and stayed that way for many years. However, by 1969, personal conflicts drove the band members apart and Jimi started playing on different tracks and performing with various other musicians. When he performed at Woodstock in the summer of 1969, Hendrix was arguably the biggest musician on the planet. He was the headline act at Woodstock, and many people, both then and over subsequent years, consider 
his performance that day to be the greatest musical experience of the 1960s. The shining moment of his performance was his cover of the Star-Spangled Banner, played as it had never been played before, exemplifying his musical skill and playfulness, using his guitar in unique and creative ways to produce sounds unlike anything heard before. In the last few years of Jimmy's life, he was involved in a few different band iterations and names, but they were always plagued by professional differences. Jimmy wanted absolute control over every aspect of the music, and the others grew frustrated with his lack of flexibility or willingness to collaborate. Like so many others at the time, Jimmy and his bandmates were indulging in drugs regularly and drank a lot. LSD was very popular, and drugs like cocaine and heroin were plentiful, as was alcohol. While some people do drugs or alcohol and simply become an inebriated version of themselves, Jimmy, on the other hand, would transform completely and was known to be a mean drunk. No one understood why he became so different when he drank, and how such a genuinely nice person could all of a sudden want to start fist fights with his friends once he was inebriated. Jimmy's final full day on earth was September 17, 1970, in London. He'd had a normal day with his girlfriend, Monica Denneman, finishing it with dinner and drinks and staying up late together. They had been drinking wine, and she later revealed that Hendrix had consumed a large dose of her sleep medicine, Vesperax, a drug containing barbiturates. This combination of drugs and alcohol caused him to vomit while he was completely intoxicated and barely conscious, ultimately asphyxiating him. When Daneman woke, she found him unresponsive and quickly phoned for help. Hendrix was dead on arrival when he reached the hospital. As we have found is often the case with these kinds of tragedies, what ordinarily might be the end of his story is sometimes just the start. We need to keep in mind that this version of Jimmy's death comes solely from Daneman. Over the years, certain aspects of their night have been deeply analysed, leaving many with the belief that his death was not a tragic accident after all. Jimmy had allegedly consumed 18 times the prescribed dose of the sleeping pills on purpose, in order to catch up on rest. In his final few days, he'd been overworked and utterly exhausted, not to mention slightly under the weather. Jimmy hadn't consumed much alcohol, and so therefore wasn't overly intoxicated, and some believe he would not have willingly or knowingly combined the two. Half a tablet of the Vesperax was sufficient for one night's sleep, and so nine tablets is an irrationally large amount for anyone to consider taking, especially if they were reasonably sober. He had consumed one amphetamine pill, but at that dosage, the effects would be no greater than an ADHD medication people take daily. Certainly, the main obstacle in finding the truth about his death is the fact that there was only one witness, Monica Denneman, and her story of Jimmy's final day has changed a lot over the decades. Some of Jimmy's friends had seen the couple that night before he died and said that he was looking unwell and Daneman had been irrationally jealous of Jimmy conversing with some women at a small gathering. 
Later, rumours came to light that some people knew about Jimmy's passing away hours before paramedics were even called. In her statement, Denneman said that Jimmy was breathing when she woke at 11am and called for help, and that she'd stayed with him all the way to the hospital. Paramedics later negated this, saying she was nowhere to be seen during their time in the apartment and that she did not come to the hospital with them. Jimmy was alone and completely lifeless on the floor when they arrived, and it appeared he'd been dead for some time. Nevertheless, there was no further investigation in the years that followed his death, and Danneman used her brush with fame to stay in the spotlight. She told people she'd dated Hendrix for a year and a half, and they'd been engaged, but somehow none of his friends or family knew anything of this alleged engagement nor much about their alleged relationship. Danneman spent the rest of her life obsessed with Jimmy. She viewed him as almost a deity rather than the human being he was with flaws. Even after she married Uli Roth of the Scorpions, she continued to obsess about her former lover, constantly talking about him and painting portraits in his likeness. Luckily, this didn't bother her husband, as Uli himself was infatuated with Hendrix. Apparently, he's even said that it was Daneman's connection to Jimmy that initially drew him to her. They both idolised Jimmy, a cult of two dedicated to an unknowing messiah. When her marriage ended nearly two decades later, she said her heart had always belonged only to Hendrix. Not long before meeting Daneman, Jimmy had had a serious relationship with a woman named Kathy Etchingham, one that lasted for three years. She had known him better than anyone else and knew all about his troubled childhood. While she recognised his genius and immense talent, she also saw him for the troubled man he was, a man who drowned his pain with drugs and alcohol. She had little time for Danneman and never fully believed her story about Jimmy's death. The initial inquest into his death went nowhere at the time, but decades later, in the early 1990s, the case was re-examined by Scotland Yard, mostly thanks to the persistence of Etchingham. All evidence was re-examined, and a doctor who specialised in forensics studied the autopsy thoroughly, and later deduced that Hendrix most likely died between the hours of midnight and 4am, based on the contents of his stomach. If his time of death had been later, the autopsy would not have found remnants of a late-night meal in his stomach, which consequently casts doubt on Danneman's story that she had found him still breathing at 11am. Sadly, this second inquiry did not conclude with anything substantial either. Tensions between Jimmy's two last ex-girlfriends were reaching boiling point after decades of simmering. It had all started in the 1970s, not long after Jimmy's death, when Etchingham did an interview for a magazine regarding her life with Jimmy. Danneman took offence to this, as she believed that she alone had the rights to his legacy and wanted to be seen as the only love of his life. Danneman later wrote a memoir where she discussed Etchingham, calling her a liar, a cheat and a gold digger, and claiming that Etchingham had lied about the depth of her relationship with Hendrix. For her part, 
Edgingham later stated that she believed Dannemann had spent maybe a few days with Hendrix prior to his death, and in her mind had built it up to be a perfect 18-month romance in which they were engaged and in love. Her evidence for this claim is the fact that there doesn't appear to be any photos of Dannemann and Hendrix together, and no one in his life knew anything about this girlfriend. Dannemann was ordered to never publicly repeat her unfounded claims against Etchingham, a court order she didn't take long to violate. Etchingham took her to court for continuing to slander her name and easily won. After just a few days, Dannemann was found deceased in her vehicle, the victim of an apparent suicide by carbon monoxide poisoning. Her still faithful, yet estranged husband, Uli Roth, refused to believe that she would have taken her life and insinuated that it was more likely murder. Now that the only witness to Jimmy's last night is gone, it's likely that we will never know the true story. However, there are rumours that Dannemann actually phoned some of Jimmy's friends in the early hours of that morning, telling them he wasn't breathing. Why anyone would keep this a secret is a mystery, but it offers a glimmer of hope that one day we may learn the truth of his death. Despite his short life and tragically short time in the spotlight, Jimmy will always live on. His use of a guitar was not only technically elegant, but raw and visceral. It forced you to stop and listen and to truly experience the music. It's impossible to think about the 60s, one of the greatest decades for music, without thinking of Jimmy and his guitar, immersing himself entirely, body and soul, into his performance. But while it is comforting to have a legacy of incredible music from him, it still hurts to think of what might have been. He died so early in his career, having accomplished in a few years what most can't in a lifetime, that it makes you wonder what else he might have produced. Beginning in the 90s, a diverse group of musicians devoted immense time and effort into honouring Hendrix music by touring as the Experience Hendrix Tour. Ironically, the lineup often includes Buddy Guy, one of the last living blues legends who was an influence on Hendrix music. Now in his mid-80s, Buddy is still going strong and along with over a dozen other musicians, still plays sold-out tours featuring Jimmy's music. 48 years after his death, it seems likely that Hendrix and his music will always live on. The next musician on our list crosses over with Jimmy, both in genre and the level of fame reached. When both were still alive, they were arguably the most famous male and female musicians on the planet. She is, of course, the legendary Janis Joplin, and like Hendrix, she played Woodstock and almost unbelievably died just 16 days after Hendrix in a similar manner. It was certainly a shocking blow to the world of music and their millions of fans, comparable in some ways to the more recent deaths of the iconic David Bowie and Prince, who died just a few months apart in early 2016. The difference, of course, is that these latter two lived significantly longer lives and had much longer careers. While Jimmy was known for his incomparable talent with a musical instrument, Janis Joplin was known for her distinctly massive and unique singing voice. 
Born in Port Arthur, Texas on January 19, 1943, Janice marched to the beat of her own drum from a very young age. It was in the church choir that she found her voice and learnt that she could really sing. Joplin experienced issues in high school and was sometimes taunted for not being conventionally attractive and for not conforming to the norms of the day. It was the late 50s and she was a magnificent flower child waiting to bloom. She most certainly stood out in her conservative Texas town, a tiny blue dot in a sea of red. She wore what she liked and she spoke her mind. Ignorant classmates called her a pig and a slut, forging deep emotional scars that would never truly heal. She befriended the freaks and geeks of her town and through them fell in love with the blues, singers like the Empress of Blues, Bessie Smith, and Ma Rainey, the Mother of Blues. Both women had been famous in the 1920s and 30s, and their influence on Joplin's style was immense. She also loved classic jazz singers like Etta James, and her own music conveyed the raw vulnerability that was ever-present in the music of Etta James. As her true passion for music developed and she began exploring the genres most suited to her voice, she evolved and grew into her true self, a free-thinking early feminist destined for great things. She escaped Texas as soon as she could and moved to L.A. for a time. But it wasn't quite her scene and she soon returned to Texas for a few years. In 1964, she moved to San Francisco, which was already becoming a mecca for free thinkers, hippies and eccentrics alike. While there was plenty of free love and good vibes floating around the city, all kinds of drugs were easily accessible and Joplin experimented with a wide variety, including meth and heroin. Eventually, she returned to Texas once more to be near her family and to break out of the heavy substance abuse that was deeply affecting her health and well-being. She worked hard to fit in with her family and their conservative lifestyle, but something continued to stir in her soul, an impulse she couldn't ignore. In 1966... A friend secured Joplin an audition with the band Big Brother and the Holding Company, who were based in San Francisco. They loved her and immediately invited her to join the band. She was now back in the city of San Fran, that musical playground awash with temptations. Joplin was concerned she might relapse into the drugs that were so prevalent in the music scene, but her bandmates assured her that they would not let that happen. They all moved in together and spent a lot of their time hanging out and partying with the Grateful Dead, and Joplin had a brief fling with band member Ron McKernan, who was sadly another tragic member of the 27 Club. After moving to San Francisco, the band played countless shows in the area, down to LA, and everywhere in between, and eventually they began touring. Joplin quickly ascended the ranks of music fame, since... Once people heard her alluringly distinctive voice, they knew she was going to be legendary. She possessed a visceral magnetism, and when she performed, you could almost see the raw emotion pouring out of her. When she was on stage, it was obvious that this was where she was meant to be. Her soft and mellow mumblings, or the gravelly primal howl fueled by pain and bourbon, 
She was mesmerizing either way. She continued with the band from 1966 to 1968, and together they created an incredible fusion of the blues and psychedelic rock, which shouldn't have worked, but somehow did. The band released two albums, one of which, Cheap Thrills, topped the charts for several weeks in 1968. This album featured two of the songs she became most well-known for, her soul-searing rendition of the blues classic Summertime and her cover of the contemporary hit Piece of My Heart. Over the next two years, she left Big Brother and became involved with a number of other bands, including the Cosmic Blues Band and Full Tilt Boogie. She continued to struggle with drugs and alcohol and was often seen with a bottle of bourbon during performances while also partaking in meth and heroin. Outwardly, she seemed to be this brash, fierce woman who owned the stage and the entire room, but there was also some part of her that was still the vulnerable teenager who was always an outsider. She sometimes struggled with the spotlight, and harsher critics derided her looks. While she may not have been conventionally attractive, she had an inner fire that made her the most electrifying woman in any room, She just didn't always realise it herself. In the weeks leading up to her death, she was feeling good. She had a fiancé and was touring and recording with Full Tilt Boogie. And her road manager later said that she'd been cleaned for months. The band was in LA recording the album Pearl. On October 3rd, after finishing a session, she lingered with the band and had a few drinks before retiring to her hotel room. The next morning, she didn't show up to record, and no one was able to reach her. Her road manager acquired a key to her room, and there he found her, sprawled on the floor, a fresh pack of cigarettes beside her, and the change from the purchase still clutched in her hand. She was already gone. The day before, her dealer had sold her heroin that wasn't of the same quality that he usually sold her. She always used the same dealer, who usually checked the heroin before selling it. On this occasion, he'd failed to check the potency and he'd sold her heroin that was almost 50% pure. This was considerably stronger than what most users would expect from a street dealer. The overdose killed her quickly, and apparently others in the area had overdosed and died from the same batch. Joplin went out at the top of her game, but... The devastating reality is she could have soared so much higher. The album Pearl was released after her death and became her defining album, containing the legendary songs Cry Baby and Me and Bobby McGee. The album topped the Billboard charts for several weeks and it contains her final recorded song, Mercedes Benz, which was laid down mere days before her death. Her voice sounds ragged and hoarse from decades of hard living, and somehow the fact that it's a somewhat whimsical song makes it all the more tragic. Ironically, the day she died, she was due to record her vocals for a song called Buried by the Blues. Joplin was a star that burned too bright, too fast, driven to self-destruction by her own demons. Just like Hendrix, She has become a tragic and almost mythical figure, but we must remember 
that she was a flesh and blood woman who constantly fought an inner battle, one that seared so clearly and viscerally through her music. The mournful undercurrent is so powerful in her songs, and it seems that all she really wanted in the end was to love and be loved and accepted, like all humans do. She will forever be immortalised as the first lady of rock and roll, and while her essence will likely forever remain unrivaled, it's hard not to wish we'd had more time with her. It would be less than a year before our next prolific singer would join the 27 Club on July 3rd, 1971. But we will get to him next time, before jumping ahead a few decades to discuss the brutal murder of a rising star. Thanks for joining us. Join us next time for more about the 27 Club. And until then, keep that nightlight on because you never know what's waiting for you in the dark. Fish are jumping